Well, we live in an age where the wrath of God, I think, makes us feel a little bit squeamish. You know, we prefer to think God as a God of love, but then we read passages in the New Testament and the Old, which describes this judgment of God against sin, and it might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. And I do wonder that if our distaste for the wrath of God stems from a, a self-righteousness, right? Because as we look at those around us, it's easy for us to think that we, you know, we measure up pretty good. We're ahead of the curve, if you will. And so statements of judgment might come across, especially if they're directed towards us, might come across as very unfair. But perhaps foundationally we need to acknowledge that there is deficiency in us that perhaps we're not quite as pure or as righteous as we might think. You know, I've been reflecting on these messages of Ezekiel for the last three weeks, and the primary theme in all three of them has been the theme of the judgment of God upon the nation of Israel. And they felt, honestly, a little bleak, a little depressing. But in each of the last three weeks, we have not seen God react disproportionately to his chosen people. I've shared this before, but, you know, there are times where my limits get pushed. I'm sure other parents have been here, and, you know, let's say one of my kids spills a glass of apple juice on the table, and I lose it. I freak out. In those moments, I'm unloading my anger in a way that is not proportionate to what is true of reality. Someone made a mistake. It was an accident. So anger from me directed towards whoever the object is is not really fair. But as we saw last week, Israel's idolatry and sin was deep and far-reaching. And so God's judgment upon them was not overly harsh. It was not unfair, but it was proportional to their violations of their covenant with God. So we've been looking at the brokenness of Israel and God's response to it. But this morning, I want to look on the other side of the coin. I want us to see, even in the midst of these statements of judgment, the deep patience and grace of God. That even though Israel sinned, what they received was not even fully what they deserved. That's what the scriptures teach us. I mean, even Ezekiel 18, if you've been following along in our Bible reading plan, uh, that would have been, I think, on Friday we read that together. Uh, Ezekiel 18, God is encouraging those who are plagued, panged by their guilt to repent of it, to turn from their wicked ways, to seek Him anew. And He says this, Ezekiel 18, 21 to 23, and I think this shows the character of God. He says, but if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. And then he says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. You know, to ensure that we're accurately framing the character of God, I want to try to balance what we've been seeing. You know, this is not, Ezekiel is not, about, you know, quote, sinners in the hands of an angry God, to quote the title of a famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards. But instead, what we see is a God who deeply loves his people. He hates to see them turning from sources of life, which is him and chasing after second-rate pleasures, 
You know, those pleasures that cannot satisfy and leave destruction in their wake. We see a God who is patient and merciful towards his people, desiring that none of them would perish from their wickedness. And so if you would open your Bibles to Ezekiel 20, I'll be reading out of the ESV, but feel free to use whatever translation you want or Bible or Bible app. I hope that we'll see that in the midst of the rampant unfaithfulness of Israel, that God has been exceedingly patient, that he's shown grace and mercy to them. And then that this truth is not diminished by the acts of judgment that we read. So I'm going to start with just the first four verses, Ezekiel 21 through 4. In the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, again, here we have Ezekiel's kind of special way of dating things. Um, this would have taken place around summer of 591 BC. So this is just under a year from what we, the vision we saw last week in chapter 8. So on this date, certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, thus says the Lord God, is it to inquire of me that you have come? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Let them know the abominations of their fathers. So these elders have again gathered around Ezekiel. Um, in case you've missed some of the previous weeks, Ezekiel is kind of one of the pre-exiles. He is already in Babylon uh, with a, some of the cream of the crop of Jerusalem. Um, this is, I guess at this point in time, we're probably about uh, five years from the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And they're looking for another word from the Lord because they've only gotten bad news to this point. And God says in verse 3 that he will not be sought by them. And it's not that God is actively preventing them from seeking. They can try, but that such seeking is ineffective. And I would argue this is totally understandable, right? I mean, think of a time that you have been betrayed by a close friend. I mean, in that moment, you probably did not want to interact with them. You know, you probably ignore their texts, you know, require, you know, uh, um, uh, asking you for uh, a, a ride home from the airport. Israel has slapped God in the face and is now trying to, you know, play nice and seek his favor and blessing. And God says, you know, nope, I'm not going to have any of it. And so Ezekiel then responds with a word from the Lord, but he doesn't answer their particular inquiry. In fact, he never even documents what it is that they asked. And so we're going to get to what that response is here in a minute. Well, not response, but what the Lord gives to him. But before we do, before we get to this next section, I want to give you a little bit of background so that as we read it, you can kind of start pulling and, and recognizing some of these themes. So what follows is God is providing examples of three successive generations of the Hebrew people, his interaction with them and their responses. And so the first generation is describing those who were in Egypt during the Exodus and then moves to the second generation, which is those who were in the wilderness. And then the third generation, the final generation, is just listed as their children, presumably those who made it through the wilderness and entered the promised land. But what we're going to see for each of these three generations is I want you to notice a six-stage cycle um, that repeats. And it starts this way. First, each of them begins where they receive some type of self-revelation from God. God is the one initiating the contact with him. 
Second, he challenges them to put away false expressions of worship and to focus on worship of him alone. But in each generation, what we see in the next step is that they rebel against him. Fourth, God threatens wrath and judgment for them. And the next one is the one that I really want to focus on. Fifth, God limits or defers his wrath for the sake of his name. And so we'll unpack that a little bit more in a minute. And then finally, there is an act of limited judgment that, that comes. So let's turn back to the text. Keep those, those six, uh, that six stages in mind. So follow along as I read. This is Ezekiel 25 to 23. <clears throat> Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt, but I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. So here starts the second cycle. I gave them my statutes, made known to them my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules. By which if a person does them, he shall live, and my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I had brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land that I had given them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands, because they rejected my rules and did not walk in my statutes and profane my Sabbaths, for their hearts went after their idols. Nevertheless, my eye spared them, and I did not destroy them or make a full end of them in the wilderness. So here's the start of the third cycle, verse 18. And I said to their children in the wilderness, do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor keep their rules, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules and keep my Sabbaths holy, that they may be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes and were not careful to obey my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. They profaned my Sabbaths. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them, spend my anger against them in the wilderness. 
But I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them through the countries. I think one of the important elements as we as an overview of this passage, is that God is communicating that each generation has the opportunity, right, the choice to obey God and His commands. They're not bound by the decisions, for good or for ill, of their parents, but they can choose anew to walk in the Lord. You know, one of, one of my uh, pastors when I was growing up used to say, you know, God doesn't have any grandchildren. We're not grafted in specifically just because of our family lineage, but we're also not excluded based off our family lineage. And this is the first step in the cycle, that each generation was given a new revelation of the Lord. God is the one initiating contact with them. We see this in verses 5 to 6, 11, and 18 to 19. All right, God chose them, not because of Israel's merit, but out of divine election. Right, there was nothing special about Israel. You know, a few chapters earlier, I think it's Ezekiel chapter 16, God describes Israel as a child who has been left wallowing in her blood on the side of the street to die of exposure. God has compassion on her. Hey, there's, there's nothing inherently attractive of Israel in that moment. The text kind of goes out of its way to give us this, this, this vivid picture that Israel's pretty nasty to look at, wallowing in her own blood. But it's the Lord who commands his child, adopts her to live, flourish, initiated by God. Then we saw the second stage that God encouraged them, reject false idols, right? False objects of worship to obey his ways. We see this in verses 7, 12, and 19 through 20. We see God mentioning his statutes, but he singles out the Sabbath. Now, of any of the Ten Commandments, this is an intriguing one because I think it showcases his heart in his relationship with his people. The Sabbath, especially the way that it's defined in the Ten Commandments in the book of Deuteronomy. So you have Exodus 20, which is the Ten Commandments, and then Deuteronomy 5, which is a restatement of them. And, you know, as a description of why he's giving the Sabbath, in Exodus, he describes it based on the creation cycle. You know, six days you should work, and one day you rest, because that's kind of how the, you know, Genesis 1, creation, came into be. But in Deuteronomy, we see that the Sabbath is a sign of their liberation from bondage. Right? They are to have a day off each week, and this is a significant change of pace from what they experienced when they were slaves in Egypt. They, they didn't get a day off when they were in Egypt. The Sabbath demonstrates God's grace, that it is a gift. It's not a reward. It's, some, it's not something that was to be earned, but a gift to remind Israel of their limits and help them focus on their dependency on God. More on that at the end. But as we might expect, Israel was pretty dense. They rebelled. We see these descriptions, verse 8, 13, and the first half of 21. Right? In, in response to God's grace, they think they know what's best, and they choose to live, you know, however they want to, instead of the ways that God taught them. Now, when, when I, I don't know about you if you've ever had this kind of experience, but when I was young in my faith, man, I was super self-righteous, everything. Like, I knew what the Bible said, and if the Bible said it, I mean, I still believe if the Bible said it, it's true, but it, it was a, a literalistic interpretation of everything. And, and I was just, like, really harsh towards Israel 
whenever I came across passages like this. I mean, like, how hard could it be? You know, God does these miraculous events. He parts the sea. He comes and, you know, provides manna for them every day. He calls you to faithfulness, and you respond with the opposite. But I have to tell you, friends, the longer I've been a Christian, the more sympathetic I am towards Israel. The more sympathetic I am towards the buffoonery of the disciples that we see in the New Testament, because I see this in my own life. Right, because there have been times, there's seasons, right, where I'm on the mountaintop, the clouds part, I can see everything clearly before me. In those opportunities, and especially I would argue when you're real young in your faith and everything's new, it's easy to have intimacy towards, obedience towards God. But then you invariably head down from the mountain back to the monotony of life. Things aren't obvious anymore. I start to feel the allure of false expressions of worship. I'm attracted to put my my security and identity in things that are not God. Israel's story is important for us to understand, for us to have sympathy towards, because I think it's our story. I think it's common for us to find ourselves going through these six stages even, but more on that a little bit later. So Israel rebels. Step four, three different times God threatens to pour out his wrath against them. One of those explicitly states that he's going to utterly destroy them. The verses are the second half of 8, 13, and 21. If you're, you don't have to jot those down, but just in case you are. Now, the next part is what I find to be the most moving part of the story. God restrains his anger. He doesn't give them what they deserve. Three times we see very similar language. Verses 9, 14, and 22. God says, I was going to do this, but instead I did this for my name's sake. God holds back. Now, I want to be very clear that this course change was not because the judgment was not deserved. Whether we consider these three generations that we see in our text this morning or the rampant idolatry that we looked at last week in chapter 8, or even in our own lives, the numerous times that we fall short of the glory of God. God's restraint is not based upon our merits. It's only based upon His grace. God says that it is for the sake of His name that He does this. God is consistent with who He is. He is a God of compassion and mercy. He is exceedingly patient. As we see in the text, he doesn't wait forever. But as I referenced when I started this morning, God does not desire the death of the wicked. He does not relish in that. He would rather all turn from their sin to him and live. And I've called this series Ezekiel, God's passion for his glory. And that's what we see here in his desire to show mercy and kindness. He does not give the people what they deserve. And judgment does fall in each of the three instances, but it's step six. It's restrained. It's limited. It's not something that is irrevocable. Let's flip down and finish the chapter to kind of talk about some future hope, eschatological hope. This is Ezekiel 20, 40 to 44 I'm going to read. This is the future promise of God towards his people. He says, for on my holy mountain, and think about this, contrast this with what we read earlier. 
For on my holy mountain, the mountain height of Israel, declares the Lord God, there all the house of Israel, all of them shall serve me in the land. There I will accept them, and there I will require your contributions and the choicest of your gifts with all your sacred offerings. As a pleasing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered. And I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, the country that I swore to give your fathers. And there you shall remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves, and you shall loathe yourselves for all the evils that you have committed. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. And this is a a passage about hope. God will bring people back to what he calls his holy mountain, signifying a return of true worship of him. And it's something we're going to look a little bit more fully in a few weeks that's foreshadowed in the final nine chapters of Ezekiel. Um, But here we see people reconciled to the Lord again, not because of their merit, but for the sake of his name, because he's a God that desires repentance from his people so he can showcase mercy in line with his character. What is important in this vision of Ezekiel is that the people are currently in phase six. God is sharing the story through Ezekiel to to people who have been exiled. They're currently in a foreign nation, in Babylon. They're facing, at that moment, a limited judgment of God. But God's promise highlights that it's not the end of the story. Stage six is never the end of the story. Restoration was coming to Israel as he promised at the end of the chapter. Now, as I said a few moments ago, stories like this about Israel are important because they are our stories as well. The details are different, but the same themes are present. God has revealed himself to us. He has initiated contact into our lives. He's called us towards obedience to himself. And for a time, we do what we sang, purging, putting away our idols from our lives. We give him our attention. But then we lose steam and we rebel. Maybe not right away and definitely not intentionally, but there's this almost slow fade in our relationship with God. We make these slight course corrections in our lives. We find ourselves, we don't mean to wander from his path, but just a small change can have a big impact over a long haul. Let's say you're flying in a plane from New York City to Los Angeles. I don't know what 3,000 miles, give or take. I don't know how far it is. But if your plane is just one degree, there's 360 degrees in a circle, one degree off. If you're flying to Los Angeles, you will miss your destination by 40 miles. Instead of landing in the airport, you know, basking in the palm trees, you'll find yourself crashed in the middle of the ocean. Not middle of the ocean. The ocean, though, nonetheless. That was an embellishment. I didn't mean it that way. The point is, our focus too often, when we think about our faith, is is these major U-turns in the, in the, the, the faith of our society. You hear words like deconstruction 
or, you know, removing the Ten Commandments from public spaces, removing prayer from schools, drag queen story hour. We, we, we fear this antagonism from all those outside of the church. But the truth is, I don't believe that our rebellion against God is from them, whoever they are out there. I think it's a series of incremental, small incremental decisions that we make to remove God from our lives. And then time goes by and we don't know how we ended up wandering as far away as we have. But friends, there's good news. God's grace draws us back to himself. We see from the lesson of the Israelites that God's divine election cannot be revoked. God is faithful to bring us back to himself. I, you know, I, I don't believe that you can lose your salvation. This is one of the, I'm, I'm a hybrid reformed person, I guess now. I don't know where I fit. I'm a theological mud. But one, one of the, the, the um, reformed theology Calvinist doctrines is the perseverance of the saints. And unfortunately, that's been boiled down to a once saved, always saved. If you just say these words of a prayer, then, you know, you're always saved. But I, I, don't, I don't think that that's the mentality that God has here. I believe more so that God in his grace and his faithfulness will finish what he started in us. But that might involve discipline. There might be acts of limited judgment like we see at step six in this. We see this, Hebrews 12 points to this, that there might be judgment, that it's discipline. God's judgment in its fullness, God's wrath has already fallen on Christ. We don't have to face that, but limited judgment in the form of discipline may come. Now, this is not God punishing us because he is angry with us, but it's like the parent who allows their kids to go through natural consequences in an effort to learn that there might be better ways to do things. But even if that is the case, even if you find yourself in one of those situations in your life, stage six is never the end of the story. Now, as a final piece of application, I want to end with something that on the surface doesn't seem to fit with everything that we've been talking about, this six-stage cycle, right? the Sabbath. What does the Sabbath have to do with maintaining our fidelity to God? Now, clearly, there's some connection, because that is the one ten co- of the Ten Commandments that God singles out in the passage that he read. But I think this is the, what the connection is. When we honor the Sabbath, we reject self-reliance. Practicing the Sabbath is a way and a time for me to see my limitations, that I can't do it all. It's an exercise of trust towards God, right? If I'm removing one-seventh of my productivity from my potential, I am limiting myself in some way in an effort to receive from God the gap that such rest creates. I mean, it's not formulaic in the way, but this is kind of the the type of thing that, to use like a business model, Chick-fil-A, right? They're closed on Sundays, but yet they still continue to find ways. Again, I'm not trying to make a formula out of this, but they are, even though it's, it's, a, it's a poor financial decision based on the way in which our society works, frankly, that's probably one of the better, would be one of the better days than the, the previous five weekdays, but they choose to do it out of a, uh, a, a conviction of faith 
and the Lord's provided. They're, they're still highly successful. They're up there. I don't think they're number one, but they're in the top five for sure in terms of income. Anyway, if we're removing a seventh of our productivity, we're limiting ourselves so that God is the one, trusting that God is the one filling in the gap. Whether it's limiting my income potential because I'm not working as much, maybe it's how clean the house looks. I mean, the list could go on and on. I'm trusting that God is the one standing in the gap, that He is going to make those things connect if it feels like there's a disconnect. But Sabbath also reminds us that the world does not revolve around us. Those emails don't really need to be responded to immediately. That load of laundry probably doesn't need to be folded right now. In the worst case scenario, right, the kids can go to school with some wrinkled clothes tomorrow. It's an acknowledgement that my time is not quite as important as I would like to think it is. We jam-pack our schedules. We probably don't do this intentionally, but quite often we fill our schedules as a means to cultivate our worth. If I have X number of appointments or tasks, it just indicates how important, how influential I am. The Sabbath is meant to be a reset button each week, reminding us of the grace of God. Remember, the Sabbath is a gift. It's not a reward. God calls us to honor the Sabbath regardless of whether or not we finished everything on our to-do list. We may never feel prepared to receive the Sabbath. There are always more things that can be done, but God calls us, honor it anyway, and trust Him. And so this week, I want to encourage us to learn from the stories of the Israelites. We are going to fail. We're, going to, we're not perfect. There are ways in which we are going to rebel against God, but that's not the end of our story. In the words of Paul, to the Ephesians. He says, even though we were by nature children of wrath, but God had great mercy and love for us. He's been faithful to us even when we're faithless. I'm rooted not in my own goodness, not in my own attentiveness to God, but I'm instead rooted in His great love for me. So I have some questions. I'll put them on the Facebook. I'll put them on the website. Um, just some things to think about process through this. So the first is this. Think of an example where you saw this six-step rhythm in your life. Where have you seen God's faithfulness omitted? Second is this. What habits can you form to help your orientation to God be true and not off by even agree? Remember that plain metaphor. What habits can we do to make sure that we're pointing? And it's kind of like if you're I don't know, I'm, I'm not an outdoorsy person, but, you know, if you're hiking with a compass, you know, the, that idea of, like, true north, I know that's something, true north, that's the right thing to say, but I don't know what, totally what it means. But, right, how are we focused on true north towards God, if you will? Not deviating from our path. And lastly is this, when was the last time that you really honored the Sabbath? Give it a try this week. Right? Think of it instead as a rebellion to your to-do list. Man, those to-do lists can... can they, they can uh, break us sometimes because you're never going to get it all done. Rebel against your to-do list and rest in God's love. Let me pray. Lord, you have showcased your love towards us that while we were faithless, you have been faithful. 
that you have given us good things, and even when we've spurned your goodness and have chased after these things that cannot satisfy, your love draws us back to you. May we be so rooted in the person of Jesus Christ that we can know that that, that wrath has been absolved through him, that, has been, uh, that, that our, our justification, you see us. When you see us, you see this image of Jesus, but knowing that, that that's not a, an excuse, it's not a, a, a reason to just walk whatever path we want. So may our hearts be attuned to you, walking in your ways, and may this Sabbath, the opportunity to, to rest in your Sabbath, be an opportunity for us not just to have a day off, not just to... to do all the fun stuff that we didn't feel like we got to do in the week, but a time that we can reflect and refocus and recenter on you. May it be that reset button in our lives. Thank you for your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.